Let's look at a couple of scriptures. We're talking about, uh, I've been going through, uh, from a biblical Christian perspective, uh, The Four Agreements, a book written by Don Miguel Ruiz that uh, I think has lots of little nuggets in it. Good enough that I thought I would share some of them. Uh, the first agreement that we talked about for several weeks was being impeccable with your word or harmless with your word in the way that you speak to others, in the way that you speak about yourself. The way that you speak to yourself and your self-talk. The second one was uh, never take anything personally. Uh, that's to realize that what other people do, they do because of them. They don't do it because of you. <laughs> so uh, <clears throat> it sure makes life a lot easier if you don't take things personally. Really, if, if, you, if you reverse these agreements, <clears throat> in other words, if you choose to go against them, in my opinion, what you're looking at is a great way to create hell and suffering for yourself. <laughs> this is, in other words, this is what hell looks like. And actually in the book, the author talks about this is how the dream of hell, that's what he calls it. Uh, and of course, we're not talking about the literal place when you die, but just the, probably the experience of it. What is lacking the love of God, the presence of God, the, the fruit of the spirit. If you think about the fruit of the spirit, it's love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control, all that good stuff, right? So that would be manifestations of what God's environment or what the kingdom of heaven is like. And what's other than that would be not heaven. <laughs> and so these are ways to sort of create hell and suffering for yourself. So if you're going to speak horribly to other people or you're going to speak horribly to yourself about yourself, you're going to create suffering for yourself and others. If you speak... Um, not harmlessly to other people or about other people, there's going to be a backlash from that, right? So that's going to come back at you. That's going to create suffering. So there's that one. And then obviously taking things personally, we looked at that for a couple of weeks, uh, how that can create hell for us as well. Now, when it comes to taking things personally, a lot of that is built on the third agreement. And the third agreement is about making assumptions, or about not making assumptions. So I want to talk about that and explore that a little bit today. <clears throat> and we'll read a couple of scriptures that go along with that in a minute. When I think about assumptions, I'm taken back to my freshman year, <laughs> my freshman year in high school. And uh, one, one, one of the few classes I remember from my freshman year of high school, and I don't know if that's because it was so long ago or because I just didn't pay attention in my classes. <laughs> so it could be a little bit of both. But uh, I remember we had to take this uh, class called Leadership Development. You guys remember that? You guys went to county. Do you remember Leadership Development? It was a ROTC class uh, that was required for us to take. Uh, and I remember Sergeant McNichols was my teacher. Remember him? Uh, yeah, Sergeant McNichols. And, and I can picture it perfectly. I mean, I can picture where I sit. I mean, it's such a vivid memory for me. And the only other vivid memory I have from my freshman year is my algebra class because it was torture. <laughs> so one was heaven, one was hell. But uh, we had this leadership development class. And I really think, you know, in retrospect, I wish that they would have done more of that kind of teaching and, and had more of those kinds of classes available. Maybe they did. I just wasn't into ROTC. <laughs> Anyway, this was required, and I remember Sergeant McNichols sitting there and drilling into our head. He was an old drill sergeant that had retired and was teaching school, and he drilled into our head, assumption is the mother of all screw-ups. That's what he would call it. Assumption is the mother of all screw-ups. Now, I'm sure when he was a drill sergeant, he used a different word, <laughs> but he cleaned it up for us freshmen in high school, right? <clears throat> 
and that always stuck with me. So I guess because of that, I've always been aware of how assumptions can get us in trouble. But again, here's the thing about assumptions. And I kind of went over this a little bit last week. But here's the thing about assumptions. You can't not do it. Your mind is going to do it because your mind has to be able to make sense of the world in order to navigate through it. So I used this example last week. To come to church this morning, there were a, there was a whole set of assumptions that we had to make. We had to assume we were going to wake up. <laughs> we had to assume that there was going to be church today, right? We had to assume that our car would start. We had, to, And so we have this whole thing in our head that we don't even think about that's built on what we would call safe assumptions or reasonable assumptions. And so your mind has to anticipate what's coming next and it has to be able to make sense of what's happening and it likes to keep things simple and organized and so it works great for that kind of simple stuff when we get into relationships is when assumptions begin to get us in trouble (laughs) because we have to do the same thing as far as making assumptions what gets us in trouble so it's really for me the agreement isn't so much about don't make assumptions for me it's more about being awake and alert and conscious of the fact that we do make assumptions and that when it comes to relationships we could be wrong about our assumptions and it's never a good thing to act on your assumptions does that make sense (laughs) so here's our problem in the way that we communicate so kind of for the next part of this I want to talk a little bit about communication. So I think what I'll do is I'll go ahead and read the scriptures first, because in order to prevent assumptions from being a problem for us and for other people, we have to look at how we communicate with each other. So in the book of Proverbs, Proverbs chapter 25, verse 11, interesting verse that hopefully uh, I'll be able to make some sense for you out of. Proverbs chapter 25, verse 11 says, A word fitly spoken is like apples of gold in a setting of silver. So I want you to get that picture, apples of gold in a setting of silver. I want you to get the idea of what the detail might be there and also how precious that would be, particularly in the ancient world, talking about a setting and talking about something that's made of silver and gold. And he says that's a word fitly spoken, right? So that's communicating, talking, sharing. Now come with me to James chapter 1. And James is using this in a little bit different context, but it fits in this context as well. It's a good principle, so let's look at it. James chapter 1, verse 19. And 20, verse 19 and 20 from James chapter 1. He says, Know this, my beloved brothers, let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger, for the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. So I want you to think about that. Be quick to hear, be slow to speak, and be slow to anger. So literally slowing the process down. And that's what our mind doesn't like to do. Our mind will often make assumptions because it wants things quickly, especially in our culture and our day and age. We want something and we want it quickly. And we want to express ourselves, right? We have been given freedom of speech. (laughs) 
<laughs> now, you do realize the intent. I don't know how many people realize this because I see a lot of things about, I mean, freedom of speech is a value that we hold as Americans, and I understand that, and I think it's an important value. But when the writers of the Constitution were thinking about freedom of speech, they were, they were thinking about government. They were thinking about setting up a government, and their primary objective was to protect citizens from tyranny. Tyranny imposed by the government, right? So freedom of speech means that the government does not have the right to censor your speech, particularly when it's about criticism of that government. <laughs> so that's the context for what they're thinking, what they're doing, right? Uh, so now if an employer, now just bear with me, don't get triggered. If an employer has a certain image or whatever that's tied to their profits, to their bottom line, and your freedom of speech threatens their bottom line, you really don't necessarily have a right to expect that you can have freedom of speech and keep your job. Does that make sense? That the Constitution is not protecting that. You, you can use your freedom of speech. You won't go to jail. But you might lose your job. And so you have to have the... Uh, I don't know why I'm talking about this. You have to have the intestinal fortitude if you're going to speak up to realize I might lose my job and not try to play the victim and cry and say my freedom of speech was violated. Now, the reason I'm belaboring this point is because it gives us this idea that we have the right to always express what we think and to always express what we feel. And so as Americans, we are less slow to speak than probably other cultures, and certainly than other cultures that are like in the East. In the East still, like in Korea, I'll tell you a story about Korean airlines. Korean airlines are now the safest airlines that you can fly uh, in the world. That used to not be the case. <laughs> they used to be the, the most uh, dangerous airline that you could fly. And so they had to research why their airlines were so dangerous. This is going back so many, many years ago. And one of the things they found out was that in Korean culture, the person who is the oldest always has the right to speak and is always respected as being right. So you may have two or three people in the cockpit or people that are working on the planes, and you may have younger people that know that something is wrong, that know that something is amiss, but because they are not the oldest, they don't put it out there. Now, that's totally foreign to our culture. In our culture, the younger, the sharper, the more up and coming, the more freshly out of school, the more with new ideas, the more desirable you are, at least that there's that perception there, to hire. The older you are, by the time you're 55, you're thinking about retirement or whatever. Heck. I don't know. I mean, call me crazy because I'm not 55 yet, but I'm thinking maybe by the time I'm 55, I'll figure some stuff out and actually be worth something. <laughs> but by that time, they're ready to put you out to pasture. So it's just a different culture. My point is, is that we're, we're not necessarily slow to speak. So he's not saying don't speak. He's not saying don't share your opinions. He's saying be slow to do it or take time to process and think and weigh things out before you speak because what we often end up doing is, is speaking and acting out of our assumptions, particularly assumptions out of what other people are thinking. <laughs> 
So you always know you're getting yourself into assumptions when you start answering the question of why somebody does what they're doing if they haven't told you. Because the moment you assume to know why somebody does something is the moment you move into assumptions. In fact, anything that someone does not communicate clearly and directly to you that you believe about them is an assumption. Now, that works in a reverse way, too. Anything that you and I don't clearly communicate about ourselves leaves the door open for other people to make assumptions. And they will, and more often than not, we'll discover that our assumptions are not totally accurate. So someone else will make assumptions about us, then they'll act on those assumptions and do something to us, and then we take it personally... And then once we take it personally, because they did that to us, because we don't understand they're operating out of their assumptions, we assume they meant to hurt us, we assume they meant to do us harm or whatever, and so we take it personally, and then once we take it personally, we forget about being harmless with our words, and we start, <laughs> we start and so there's this whole, you see how they all kind of work together? So part of our problem, I think, is that in school, it was never really, I mean, I don't know, it wasn't the most positive experience for us to say, I don't understand something. I'm sure all of us can relate to a time uh, in school, perhaps, perhaps we can remember it, perhaps not, where we asked questions and we were told maybe that we were stupid or somebody in the class laughed at us or some student somewhere said, what, how could you not know that? Didn't you, you know, whatever. And so it left kind of this emotional imprint on us. And we, somewhere along the way, we made a, 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 it depends on the person, you might have made a vow that says, I'm never going to do that again, right? Or you may have just said, I'm going to be a lot more cautious about doing that again. But regardless, we kind of live in this, in this world where it, we don't necessarily feel safe or comfortable saying, I don't understand something. But again, being quick to listen and being slow to speak has to do with understanding, doesn't it? You think about Stephen Covey. How many of you ever read Stephen Covey's book, The Seven Habits of Highly Effective People? Uh, it was really cool because the elementary school that Elijah was going to in uh, Arizona when we were down there, they had structured their whole year around teaching the kids the seven habits. So he would come home and, and talk to me about the seven habits and different ones. And one of the ones, and they, you know, they really uh, made it much, much, much simpler uh, for the kids. In fact, I thought somebody ought to take Covey's book and rewrite it, like for kids, and hand it out to adults. <laughs> but one of the, so we could really get it, because there are really good principles in there. But one of the principles is seek to understand before seeking to be understood. And so it's the same idea that if you go into a relationship, you go into a situation, particularly a tense situation, go into it seeking to understand. There's another great book out, if you're interested in this kind of stuff. There's another great book out. Some of you probably may have done it at work. It's called Crucial Conversations. And it was a group of researchers who looked at effective management and looked at effective structures 
uh, in different organizations, schools, churches, businesses, whatever. And they tried to boil down what do effective leaders, what do effective managers do really, really well that makes them so effective. And one of the things that they discovered was that they were really good at what they called crucial conversations. Now, a crucial conversation is a conversation that you're having when the stakes are high. In other words, it's emotionally loaded because everybody cares about that conversation. Right now. So so what they did was they broke down different ways that you can have a crucial conversation. Now, here's the thing about crucial conversations. When a conversation is emotionally loaded and the stakes are high, safety often gets violated. The person doesn't feel safe. Think about it. How many of you can think about a crucial conversation that you need to have or have to want to have or don't want to have because you don't feel safe going in there having the conversation. And if you don't feel safe going in there having the conversation, how safe does the other person feel about having the conversation? So one of the things they found out was people who are really good at this, they make safety the, their primary goal. Because what happens when you don't feel safe? You go into fight or flight, right? Everything speeds up. So you can't be, and, and actually, your senses kind of shut down, you're in your mind thinking, how am I going to respond? So you actually, when you go into fight or flight, when you don't feel safe having a conversation, you do the exact opposite of what James says. You're, you're, you're slow to listen, and you're quick to speak. <laughs> so it's important that we, may, that, that we preserve safety when we're having those conversations, safety for ourselves and safety for the other person. But then they go into this thing and find out that the number one reason why people don't feel safe having those conversations is because of assumptions, because of the stories that they're telling themselves in their own mind. So one of the things they say if you're getting ready to have a crucial conversation is to master your stories, to make sure that you don't have in your mind who's the victim, who's the villain. Uh, you know, let, in other words, let go of the story that you're telling and then give the person, make it safe for them, bring up the topic, and then give them the opportunity to share their path. And this is where you have to um, make sure that you're not afraid to ask questions if you don't understand. Because here's how we talk. Well, you know, there's just a lot of issues here and a whole lot of stuff that's going on. And we just need to talk about some things. Now, think about how much people talk like that. Now, here's the problem. Stuff, stuff is what I have thrown all over my bedroom and the boys' bedroom after two days without mom. And them getting into everything. That's stuff. If we're talking about stuff, I don't know what stuff we're talking about. So guess what my mind will do? My mind will make assumptions about the stuff, and it'll make it based on what's important to me, not necessarily what's important to you. Same thing with issues. Issues are stuff you read about in the paper. Issues are stuff that the government deals with. They're dealing with issues, right? See, politicians are masters at this. Listen to a politician speak, and you'll, you'll hear them say stuff and things. And it, we want to do what's in the best interest of the American people. Well, the American people are totally divided, first of all. So which American people are you talking about? <laughs> it depends on whether there's a D or an R by your name. And how do you know what's in the best interest? Because that presumes to know everybody's interests. Interests. Do you see how all the assumptions are loaded in there? But it prevents them from triggering somebody. 
Because what you'll do is go into the mind and say, yes, what I, I'm an American people, and what I'm interested in they care about. But see, that's all your assumptions. And they deliberately use that kind of language in order to manipulate your mind into doing that. So that everybody thinks they're on the same page. Does that make sense how that works? I was talking to an individual a couple of weeks ago, and uh, he, was, he was telling me about how an organization, uh, you know, sometimes when you're too outspoken in an organization uh, about issues, you, <laughs> problems, <laughs> stuff, see how we do it? You're violating safety for the people that are in that organization, the people that have the power in that organization, right? And so if you're talking about real issues and stuff, um, sometimes they're afraid you're going to damage their organization, so they will seek to, so one of the strategies that leaders can use is they will seek to discredit you uh, to other people before you have a chance to say your side of the issue. <laughs> right? And so I was talking to this individual, and he said, you know, I had to hand it to this this person that was over this organization that that uh, vilified me. He was talking about himself. He said, I, you know, I have to appreciate clever, even if it is for the wrong purposes. But somebody went to the leader of the organization after this person had been kicked out and said, uh, well, what did he do? And it was a lady who was leading the organization, and she put on, she said, oh, it's just so terrible. I can't even talk about it. I just don't even want to tell you. It's so terrible. Now, what happens when you hear that? You have to make assumptions. So whatever you think is the most terrible thing is where your mind's going to go. <laughs> and more often than not, we don't pursue it any further or ask any other questions. And that's where this proverb about settings of apples of gold and settings of silver really comes into play, and a word fitly spoken. See, if I'm using vague generalities, if I'm talking about stuff, and I'm talking about issues, and I'm talking about things, and I'm talking about people, listen to how I'm generalizing. Well, the people, everybody, everybody, every single person. <laughs> you talk to every single person in this organization about that one issue. Um, Things, there's just things going on that, that are not good. <laughs> well, not good according to whom? <laughs> See how you start, you can start breaking that down. So those are not golden apples and settings of silver. So what I'm saying is, is that when people are using that kind of language, if you really want to understand, you have to be willing to take the risk to ask questions. What specifically? Who specifically? I can tell you really care about this. Let's talk about this. And what's really going on and what's really happening. Does that make sense? By the same token, if you don't want people making assumptions, and I'm bad about this because I get in a hurry. See, slow to speak. Um, but if you don't want people making assumptions about you, then you have to make sure that you tone down that kind of language. Because what you're doing is allowing them to make assumptions based on their value system, based on what they think, rather than on what's really happening with you. So then you have to talk about specific things. Otherwise, you 
will be misunderstood. But often what happens to us is we go in and we use these vague generalities, stuff, things, everybody, people, and then the other person makes assumptions, totally misunderstands, operates out of those assumptions, gets triggered, (laughs) and then we take it personally. Well, I was just misunderstood. (laughs) Well, somewhere in life you've got to realize it's your responsibility, and I've got to realize it's my responsibility to make sure that we're understood. So sometimes it's a good idea, especially in a crucial conversation, what did you understand me to say? Well, what do you mean what I understand you to say? (laughs) I just want to make sure, because see, people don't like to have to explain themselves. I just want to make sure that we're on the same page. I want to make sure that my message came across clearly. What did you understand me to say? And let that person feed that back to you. If a person's getting triggered, sometimes a good question to ask is, I can, you know, to observe that, bring that to their attention. I can tell that you really care about this. I can tell that this is really important to you. Um, it seems like you might be afraid of something. What is it about this issue or situation that is causing you to be afraid? Well, I'm afraid that's going to happen. Because our fears are all based on assumptions. <laughs> I'm going to do that and people are going to judge me. I'm going to do that and people are going to hate me. Right? Well, what happens if they do? See, it's it's taking the time to break down those assumptions. And last thing about this, when people make assumptions, when you and I make assumptions at other people and other people make assumptions about us, it is always, your assumptions are always telling you more about yourself than about the other person. And the other person's assumptions when they bring them out, are telling them more about you. I mean, telling them more about them. Telling you, let me get this right, telling you more about them than it's anything about you. Now, see, when when they invented psychotherapy, they understood this really, really well. And early, because, because all this stuff is in us, but we don't know that it's there. So early on in the therapeutic world, and still today, really, the goal of what a therapist would go in deliberately to do is to become as neutral as possible with you, to become a blank canvas. So counseling was never meant to be about you come to me or you come to that, go to that person with a problem and that person solves your problem for you. Because there's no growth that comes from that and there's no lasting change that comes from that. And it creates codependency because if I always need somebody else to tell me what to do, I can't function in life. And that's really bad ministry. And we can do that with the Bible. We can come in, well, okay, here's what the Bible says you're supposed to do. And that's how 99% of pastoral counseling goes. I mean, all the counseling classes I had in seminary or whatever were Bible school were, um, you know, how to fix problems according to scripture and so you're like you like become the answer man but you're that person is not learning to hear from god they're not learning to grow in their relationship with god and they're not learning to grow up and solve their own problems what they're learning is to be codependent upon you (laughs) to find out what the solution is for every answer and people who are egotistical like that 
really good counseling and therapy. And again, in the Bible, counsel in the heart of a person is like deep waters, and a man of understanding will draw it out of them. So, so the Bible presumes that the counselor is inside you, and you've got every answer to every problem that you have. And it's our job not to tell you what those answers are. It's our job to draw out of you what's already in you. And so in early psychotherapy, they understood this. And so the idea is that you become a blank canvas and the person projects all their stuff on you. And then as a skillful therapist, you're able to bring to light what they don't see based on their projections. And so one of the goals was to get the person really upset with you but to do it in such a way that you didn't really cause it. I'll, I'll show you a perfect example of how this has worked. That's why I don't counsel people in the church much. Because somebody will tell you, in the right environment, they will tell you what's really troubling them, what's really bothering them. And more often than not, there's shame around those issues, particularly if it's something that they're hiding, right? So what happens is, is when they tell you that, all the shame... And all the judgment that they've put on it, all the places where they're not harmless and impeccable with their own words, is being brought out, right? They almost can't not feel totally insecure about that after the session. Because they get away from the session, they get back into their patterns, they get back into their coping mechanisms, and they want to cover up, but they can't cover up because they just told somebody. And the reason they've been covering it up is because they're afraid of being judged, so all these assumptions start tormenting them about what is my counselor thinking about me? What is my pastor thinking about me? They're judging me. They're, they've got an opinion. But see, all that stuff is in them. What's really coming out is their own judgments and opinions that they've made about themselves that's keeping them stuck. But they're mind reading and assuming it's coming from someone else. So then you stand up and preach. And I remember this is when I decided I'm not counseling people in the church anymore because I remember I was, I was counseling a couple through a really uh, difficult situation. And the lady came at me the next week. You know, I wasn't even thinking about them when I was preaching. Honest to God, I wasn't. I mean, sometimes I would be and think, oh, that really fits for them. But this time I wasn't. You know, they weren't even on my radar. And she came back and says, you know, it's really unfair that I would share with you in counseling and then you would stand up the next Sunday and preach to me about it. If you got something to say, just say it to me. And I thought about that, and I went through like my last six or seven messages. I just randomly picked up a couple. And I looked at the content like through my notes and stuff, and I realized that because their issue touched on so many different areas, that if I had preached any of those messages, it would have fit and affected something that was going on in that person's life. So any message that I would have preached would have been filtered through the lens of, that's about me. Then the assumption would be, he's preaching at me, about me. The Holy Spirit may do that, or it may be that person's assumptions. But see, the Holy Spirit will bring fruit. The Holy Spirit will bring peace. The Holy Spirit will bring grace. The Holy Spirit will bring comfort. The Holy Spirit will bring acceptance. And the Holy Spirit will bring change. What the Holy Spirit will not bring is fear, guilt, shame, and condemnation. And so it depends on what that person's operating out of. 
Because I've had other people come and say, man, I don't even need to come back to the counseling session because everything that you just said, you know, helps me know what I need to do about my situation and about my problem. And they're excited. That's life-giving. When they come at you angry because you're judging them and trying to fix them from the pulpit, that's their set of assumptions based on the dream of hell that they're creating. Does that make sense? So just understand when people are coming at you with stuff, it's telling you way more about them and it's telling, and even when they're accusing you, when they're accusing you and pointing the finger, it's telling you way more about them than it is about you. And it's telling a lot about their fears. Does that make sense? So the key to assumptions is asking questions. Even if you think it's a safe assumption, even if you think you're right, and even if you are right, it never hurts to say, let me ask you a question. Are you thinking this? Is this what's going on? Whatever it is, try out your assumption. And if the person tells you, no, it's not that, it's this, be willing to accept that answer. And even if they're contradictory, like if you ever had somebody tell you something, I, I, I've done this, you know, like they tell you something and then you challenge it or whatever, then they come back and tell you something totally different without ever admitting that the first thing they told you was wrong. You know what I'm talking about? And, and if we're not careful, we want to say, yeah, but you said this. <laughs> now you're saying this. Just please understand, we're complex beings. We don't know why we do what we do. <laughs> And when, when our significant other or whatever is sitting there demanding an explanation, we, we don't know why we're this messed up. We don't know why we're doing what we're doing. We're doing our best because we love you to try to explain ourselves. And then sometimes our explanations don't make sense. And we agree with you. And so we're sitting there processing, thinking, yeah, that didn't make sense. Well, you know what? I think it was this. <laughs> Most people are doing the best they can with what they have. Most people are not out to get you or out to hurt you or out to cause problems. Most people are doing the best they can with what they have. And if you're in a relationship with somebody and you love that person and you know that person loves you, make room for their humanity. Make room for their assumptions and their mistakes. Have some grace. Have some forgiveness, Right? And be willing to engage in that and don't torture them or punish them or beat up on them because they're human. Apparently God likes us this way. Apparently he likes us complex and messy and, and I mean, I love my kids. I had a great time with my kids. My wife's going to come home because I was so tired last night. I thought, well, I'm going to wait till the kids go to sleep and then I'm going to clean the house because she'll probably beat me home today. I fell asleep and I got up and I thought about the laundry and the mess and the, and the Cheetos all over in the ground up inside the, inside the sofa. <laughs> eggshells over there. I look at the eggshells. I'm like, where did those eggshells come from? <laughs> I just tell you this and I'm done. I'm just because I got a lot of time. But I, I, I forgot to feed the fish. She's gone for a day and a half and she's always afraid of her animals. You know, like, are the dogs going to be OK? Is the fish going to be OK? All that stuff. And so we have this little betta fish, right? And, and I forgot to feed the fish. I just forgot yesterday to feed the fish. And I don't know if the boys fed it or not. So I get up last night, this fall, right before Josiah falls asleep, because he's my night owl. And I'm looking at that little tank, and I, I, swear to, I swear I could not find that fish. I'm like, 
where's that fish? I mean, it's just a little tank, right? I mean, there's one little thing it could be hiding in, but I'm looking, you know, is it hiding in there? Where is that fish? I can't find the fish. So then I'm thinking, I did leave the kids kind of unsupervised in the living room. I mean, I was in the dining room. They're attached, but I was doing some study on my computer and trying to get ready for today, and they were doing, I don't know what they were doing. That probably explains the eggshells and the crushed up Cheetos. But, but the, And, you know, I could see Josiah thinking he had to get the fish and maybe, I don't know, do, he's always doing science, you know, with all this stuff. It's like maybe he did science with his fish, you know. Like, Josiah, did you take the fish? No. I'm like... And I'm sitting there thinking, I killed the fish. Maybe the fish is buried, you know, underneath there. I killed the fish because I didn't feed it. And then I had to remember, I know it seems like it's been three weeks that my wife's been gone. <laughs> but it's really only been 36 hours. I don't think a fish is going to starve to death because I, 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 did, I mean, total that she's going to be gone, right? And I'm not even at the 36 yet. So it's, it's only been 24 hours. I don't think that fish could have starved to death in 24 hours. I don't know where he was, but thank God this morning he was swimming around his tank. I just thought, man, but I thought, I can't buy that fish. I thought, I'm going to bed. I'm going to bed. I don't know why I was sharing that. I had a point. Um, she'll be full of assumptions when she comes home. <laughs> so anyway, uh, I, I think somewhere in there my point was that we're doing the best we can. <laughs> It's what we have, and we're not intentionally leaving ground-up Cheetos. All right, let's stand up and pray. I hope this was helpful. I just kind of talked from my heart today. I don't know. I hope it was helpful for you. I <clears throat> hope it wasn't too uh, boring, <laughs> too unspiritual, too practical, whatever. So, Lord, thank you for uh, your love for us. Thank you. Um, and help us to sort through our assumptions. Uh, help us to have grace with one another as we relate in love and try to keep these agreements of being harmless with our words, of not taking things personally, and not building our life based on assumptions. And Father, help us to recognize when we're doing those things. And lead us and guide us by your spirit and by your truth. And we just give you thanks so much for all you're doing in our lives. Thank you for these people that came this morning. Bless them in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, guys. Have a great day.